0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flop Guy podcast. I'm Andy Mokel, and I'll be your host. Our goal is to have epic conversations with people from all walks of life. There are no talking points that are off the table. It's going to get wild. We hope our guests inspire and motivate you to walk with purpose as we trudge the road of human existence. Enjoy the show. Yeah. How you feeling today? I feel good. Yeah. What time did you wake up at? 5:30. Yeah. It's not a bad time to wake up. No,
1: I was going to go work out, but that didn't happen.
0: I woke up at 4:30 and I was like I still got 2 hours to sleep or whatever. I ended up waking up at 6:30, which was nice, but I ended up making
1: a little coffee, getting a little work done and
0: starting the day out right. Yeah. Nice. Ready to go. <laughs> yeah, right. That's how it always goes. So, first, why don't you tell us who you are?
1: I am Scott Uh I'm the president and co-owner of Volquartsen Firearms, which is a firearms company where we specialize in all things rimfire.
0: What made you decide to do rimfire? So
1: my dad started the business, and he would do everything, general gunsmithing, refinishing, basically anything that would pay the bills mm-hmm. and allow him to be in the gun industry is what he did at the time. But he was also a one-man shop, so there was a limit to what he could do. And as he grew, he finally had to narrow his focus on what he was going to do.
0: And We were talking about that a little bit yesterday on the yeah. ride-in, and you were telling me how your dad would just kind of take in any gun project that anybody had around yes. the area. Yeah, uh, he
1: would do everything from repairs to re stuff to, you know— at some point it was anything just to help out local people Mm -hmm. but then as it grew you know because initially it was like a part-time job that he was doing or a hobby I should say that he was doing then he had a full-time job so when he made that leap from going from being employed elsewhere into working for himself I think like a lot of people he had that fear that it wasn't going to work out or so he took on every job he could Mm-hmm. But as he grew and started having some success, he finally decided he's like, okay, I, I, I got to narrow my focus, otherwise I'm going to go crazy.
0: So this is way too much work right now. I yes. need to slow this down a little bit.
1: I mean, and he was working or day or and take night on an employee. Which... Yes. So the only employees that he would take on would be like my grandfather, eventually my mom, family members, family members. He wasn't going to hire anybody outside the family. And, I mean, he was so much in control of what was going on. If he left for an afternoon, we all left.
0: He there, he didn't, he he was not letting anyone work. No, there's no
1: there was none of us that was going to screw anything up while yeah. he was gone.
0: The oversight needed to be there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as
1: he started doing that, like in the early 90s, he looked, you know, there was already some people building really cool 1911s and ARs and all that. 1911 is one of my favorite handgun platforms yeah. on the face of the earth. And it was a, it was his, too, at the time. But he's like, there's so much competition in there. Mm-hmm. He said the one thing, though, that it seems like everybody that shoots, regardless of what they shoot, they all have 22s. Yeah. And nobody at the time, outside of maybe Jim Clark down in Louisiana, was really doing anything with, like... 22s, and in particular, the Ruger 10-22, and at the time, Mark 1 and Mark 2. So he decided to make that kind of his baby. And, and even as we've grown, we've always said, okay, at some point, that market's going to be saturated. And then we'll expand, because we have a lot of other ideas we want to get to. But the more we've grown, the more equipment we've added, the more uh, team members we've added, the further behind we've gotten.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So in, it doesn't make sense to branch out into other things. Now, when.
0: <laughs> really quick, when you say the further behind you've gotten, the more you've focused and concentrated on what your brand, what your flagship products are and developing those. And that's kept you from continuing growth into other spaces that you have wanted to go into? Yes. Okay. And it's, you would think it's the opposite
1: as you narrow your focus and in some ways limit what you're doing. You would think that would reduce your market size but it's as we focus on just a couple core products it's done the exact opposite we've grown exponentially
0: well and something that's always been really interesting to me and this is going back from a lifetime spent on different ranges and everything is every time I go to the range, there's always guys with crazy custom rimfire rifles and really nice built out rimfire rifles. And I could never understand for the life of me because I'm bringing a 3378 or a seven STW or, you know, a warbird or something like that. And I, I just love shooting these like hefty caliber rifles, you know, and, and everything. And, I'm watching these guys shoot 22s, and I'm like, I, what, "What's the draw to a 22?"
1: And we get that a lot, mm-hmm. but it's interesting because we'll also see a lot of people that'll bring similar to what you bring to the range, mm-hmm. but then they'll switch over to 22 because it's less recoil, it's not as loud, and a lot of times it's much cheaper to shoot.
0: Well, and something that I realized when I shot 1911s a ton, I used to go and do a lot of pistol training courses. And, you know, you'd be in excess of 2,500 rounds at the end of the day. And something that I found, I would get a kit for my 1911, and I'd put a 22 slide on it. And then I would be able to go to the range uh, just on like a regular range day. And I'd go do 250 rounds out of my 22, you know, switch out my slide. Yeah. And then I'd, you know, do five mags with a 45 and be, oh, okay. You know, and and what it did for me was increase my trigger time, one hundred percent, and increase my talent behind the trigger and my focus, and that was when I started to realize why a lot of people probably like to shoot twenty two, and shoot rim fire, and and really be able to get that extra trigger time and understanding of what their mind, their body, and their their fingers are doing with much less recoil. And what we've seen a lot of lately, even
1: is like. People that might be as they get a little bit older or they've had injuries in their shoulder, their wrist, arm, whatever it is, they still love to shoot. But going out and shooting a 45
0: is uncomfortable lot, for them. It's a, it's a lot.
1: But, but to your point, they want to keep that trigger time, their mechanics, everything down because they're still, you know, they're, many times they're not going to carry a 45, or excuse me, carry a 22, mm-hmm. but they still want to have that trigger time, the range time and just the fun factor of going hanging out with the guys shooting or and then you know a lot of times as they get older they start introducing their grandkids into it but it it's so much easier to do in when you're shooting 22s versus the larger calibers and so it's been really it's been fun and we you know we've had to shift our marketing a little bit of how we approach it obviously but it's been a lot of fun and it's it's no. cool to see like you know, cause so many people start on a 22 and then they go through all the things. And then we'll talk to our customers that might be 65, 70 years old that have come back to a 22. So it's like a full circle.
0: <laughs> yeah. So when you, when you're working with individuals on their firearm skills, do you predominantly work with people that are, are just getting into firearms? Or are you working with people that are shooters lifetime shooters is it a, a mixed bag or it's a mixed bag obviously being in the rimfire
1: market we do a lot with new shooters
2: mm-hmm.
1: but as we've gotten into this you know we also find there's a lot of people they may have been lifelong shooters and and like myself but they've never really been formally trained you know they were taught by like their dad or their granddad and they know, it works for them but it's not necessarily the way people would teach it, and we've even seen that we have. Uh, you might have met him at Winter Strong last year, Colby Pavlock, that shoots for us competitively, but we've even transitioned him. He works for us full time, and we use him a lot for those roles of teaching fundamentals. And people who have been around firearms all their lives are like, "I've never heard it said that way," mm-hmm. or "I've never seen that."
0: Amazing, isn't it? Yes, and that to that point too is like. For me as a lifetime shooter, when I started going into training courses and understanding things and having an open mind and being able to accept, you know, that not that I was taught wrong, but almost everything I was, I, I was a shooter of a lifetime of bad habits and I had to relearn, you know, the fundamentals and, and be able to zero in on that.
1: And I encounter that even like when I got around people that do long range shooting, mm-hmm. And if a younger version of me would have been, like, not even open to learning from them, I'm like, I got this. (laughs) Which is 100% wrong. Yeah. But as I start listening, I'm like, I've been around guns all my life, and I've never heard that particular cue. Yeah. You know, I've never seen that setup or that, whatever it is. And it was kind of an eye-opener. I'm like, maybe I should uh, talk less and listen more. (laughs)
0: Isn't that weird? Yeah. It's so funny. And I'll even take that back with like, with archery stuff, you know, um, growing up, I always, you know, I shot my bows and did my stuff, my, my archery equipment up until about 2008 or 2010 or whatever was a 1989 compound warthog. (laughs) And that's like, (laughs) That's an old. That's old technology, right? Yes. But I had a lifetime of terrible habits that I learned, and I became friends with uh, the owners of West Coast Archery in California, and they would sit me down. Hans, the owner, would sit me down and be like, "All right, dude, like, drop your elbow. What are you doing here? Like, you got all these bad habits. We need to correct this. Like, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna fix your your skills." And I think that, because that I started, I was transitioning into becoming a better archer before I was taking pistol courses and all that kind of stuff. And, um, being able to sit there and be open-minded and, and hear what he was saying without, Oh no, 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 I got this, you know? And, and all that really helped me elevate my own talents and my own skills into when I, when I got in back into shooting pistols and everything like that, that, I could listen to an instructor, understand what they're saying, realize that what I'm doing, it works for me, you know, and I can shoot well, but I can be a much more accurate and proficient shooter if I change what I'm doing to what they're instructing me to do.
1: And a lot of times that requires, you know, you have to almost go backwards before you can go forwards. Mm-hmm. You have to get back and, to and the it's fundamentals. And tough, it's tough to do, <laughs> Yeah, you know, especially like in this.
0: And here comes Colby.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you know, like in this space, you know, it's a very—I don't know—macho type thing where everybody they like—they're very it's guns, man. Yeah, their it's guns. guns. It's controlled explosions. They have their pride. They're like, I know, I got this. But if you're willing to get yourself around the right people and admit that you maybe don't know everything, <laughs> yeah. You can learn a lot and become a much better shooter.
0: Yeah. So now back to your dad growing the business. Yes. And, um, you know, going down that that route, at what point did you kind of come in and then really start stepping up to the plate and deciding that this was the career that you wanted for yourself and going to school and doing... So, Excuse me, everything that you needed to do.
1: So I would work for dad, like, when I had time throughout high school. He may argue that I really didn't work, but <laughs> I, I felt like I was. <laughs>
2: Dads, man,
0: you got to love him.
1: I mean, I'm pretty sure I was putting in a lot of hours, but I think he would argue that point, and he's probably right. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to Tool and Die School, came back, and started working for dad in 1995.
0: Mm-hmm. So at this point... And we talked about this a little bit yesterday. Primarily what your dad had been doing, he'd go to gun shows, he'd go to different places. You know, he'd find tear down rifles or, you know, stuff that needed work. And he'd buy those up and he would take them apart in order to figure out how they work, what they're doing to make himself a better gunsmith. Yes. You know, like we talked about, there was no YouTube videos
1: for anybody at that time to go back and say, well, I've got this apart. I have no idea how to put it back together. You had to just figure it out. Mm -hmm. Which, there'd be nights he'd be out in the shop until midnight because he didn't want to put this down until he figured out how it went back together. So, and primarily, when I came back, almost everything we still had was manual machines. You know, manual mills, manual lathes. And we outsourced some of our CNC work as it was just starting...
0: CNC become, industry was just beginning.
1: Yes, at least in the firearms aspect of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we progressed, and then about 2000, 2001, we started getting more into the CNC market. And because it was the computerized stuff, I had started taking on a bigger role on that side of things. He was still doing the majority of the design work and all that stuff. And then in 2005, my brother and I bought him out which was in hindsight it was almost like perfect timing because the world was transitioning to a more digital world more computerized equipment and you know his love was manual machines I always laugh when I came back I'd be like where's the print for this particular compensator and he'd look at me he goes well you just eyeball it (laughs) I'm like well (laughs) what if I eyeball it differently than you've done it all these years he goes so, you know, we really had to make a lot of changes to make it more scalable.
0: Yeah. Well, really, I got to imagine that affects the tolerances of yes. everything across the board.
1: You know, and but his love was building like one-off type. Customs. Custom, yes. So on the critical dimensions, yes, he held them extremely tight. But there was also still a part of him that was more craftsman, you know, like artwork type stuff. Mm-hmm. So, in the mid-2000s, it was perfect timing because, you know, websites were just becoming a thing. I'll the never forget trying to talk boom. him into building a website like in 2000. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Might have been before that. And I'll never forget because he looked at me. He goes, how much is it going to cost? I'm like, I found a company. It'll be $3,000. Oh, wow. And he's like, absolutely not. He's like, I don't get it. You know, and to his credit, he eventually gave in and let us do it. And it's funny when you go back and look at that original website, by the way.
0: Do you still have it somewhere?
1: Uh, Yes. (laughs) Not for public consumption.
0: Yeah, I bet. (laughs) So, yeah,
1: so 2005 is when, like, we really – we had kind of started running things prior to that because we had started hiring a few people outside the family, which was not the way dad wanted to do it. He was very protective of, and rightfully so, what he had built. And, he, you know, he always thought, like, if your last name is on something, you're going to, to take a little extra time, put a little extra pride into it. So what we've tried doing is, now that we've grown, still make it a family. You know, they may not all share our last name, but we want it to be like a family atmosphere that, everybody that works for us takes the same amount of pride as
0: everyone's proud to represent the product and yes. created an amazing product along the way.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: That's important.
1: It is important because neither my brother nor I are very good at micromanaging. We don't want to micromanage every little thing. We want to allow people to do their thing. But when you do that, it's important that we all have the same vision and idea of what a good product is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: So it was it was challenging. And, you know, as we started growing and, you know, we always joked that dad was going to be 90 years old walking in the shop and telling us all what to do. (laughs) (laughs) But I also give him a lot of credit when he decided to step away. He completely stepped away and let us take care or run things. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is he maybe had burned himself out.
0: And that'll happen too. That's the
1: downside of being a one-man shop is when you're doing the shipping, the handling the phones, the invoicing and then also have to build all the products. It's exhausting. It's exhausting.
0: When we were talking about that yesterday, spreading spreading ourselves so thin that our bandwidth to be able to give 100% of energy to each individual item you know maybe it goes down to 95% across the board then 90% yeah. then 80% and then it's you start degrading your own product you know through turning And the to
1: way he operated in his mindset was he was a perfectionist so the product could never suffer mm-hmm. so but like you said with limited bandwidth you know you only have so much bandwidth throughout the day it did become exhausting and i always tell people too you have to think back Like when we go to market a product now, there's a lot of opportunities out there to get it out there, Mm -hmm. you know, through social media, YouTube, brand ambassadors, whatever you want it to do. You know, back then it was a much more deliberate process. You had to take out an ad in a magazine, you know, and then that may appear three, four, five months down the road. And then hopefully if it was a good enough product, you could find a gun writer to write about it. Yeah. And that was, and that word of mouth was the only way you were able to grow. Yeah. And you know, and he you know, back to your question earlier about like getting into the rimfire part of it, when he first started developing a lot of products for like the Ruger 1022, which was a $100 rifle at the time, all of his dealers that he worked with told him he was nuts. <laughs> they're like nobody's going to pay cuz one of his first big products was a barrel aftermarket barrel for the 1022. Mhm. And they're like nobody's going to pay $200 for a barrel on a gun that cost $100. And he's like, well, I think they will, you know, but they're like, no.
0: And they did, didn't they?
1: Eventually they did, yes. Yeah. And like to your point before, now you have people, you know, spending, you know, our rifles don't get quite this high, but people like spending on voodoo rifles, you know, three, four, five thousand $5,000 for a 22.
0: Mm-hmm. That's so, so crazy. That's so crazy. And it's,
1: you know, I kind of laugh with a lot of younger people. They don't. Even remember, like, there was a time like the 1022 didn't have all that this entire market.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I swear the 1022 didn't even really become increasingly popular until what 10 or 11 years ago.
1: That's probably about right, yeah. Because dad and like I said, Jim Clark in Louisiana they started doing stuff in the probably mid 90s for it, yeah. But it never took off to the level that it is now until after that,
0: yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I remember. I want to say it was in 2010 on one of the gun forums I was really active in. That was when I started seeing a major surgence of ten ten twenty two threads and everything that was going on. and People really loving the 1022.
1: You know, and a lot of what has helped that market too is the 22 ammo has become much better over the years. Mm-hmm. It's more capable with different things, there's more options. So. It kind of goes hand-in-hand with the equipment being better, but you have to have... If the ammo doesn't keep improving, there's obvious limitations.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what sparked, you know, coming out with Subsonic and all the different rounds for the rimfire. You know, I know some of
1: that came along as the suppressor market boomed. Mm Mm-hmm. And a lot, you know, because prior to the the way the suppressors were treated over here, you know, they've been, we, we were working with dealers in the UK long before their, you know, gun laws went crazy. <laughs> and unfortunately they still are, but even at that point, you know, they're encouraged to have a suppressor. Yeah. You know, it's not treated like this evil
0: thing Terrible that, thing. Well, that you, we you, see Hollywood. over here. Yes. Yeah. You know. Hate to say it, but thanks James Bond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so as you know, I think as suppressors are becoming much more popular. You know, that obviously helps the 22 game. The because, you know, we offer like a straight pull bolt action that you can take out. And because it's a locked breach, you don't even he- I mean, you literally don't hear it when it goes off. It's not like on a 10-22 or a semi-auto, you'll hear the uh, hear it through the ejection port. Mm-hmm. But when it's locked, you don't hear anything. Yeah. And a lot of people are like, well, what would you need that for? And some of the stuff they miss out on is it's a great training tool because if you have your son or daughter out there and you're teaching them how to shoot, they don't have to have hearing protection on. So you're able to have normal conversations as you teach them. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about most people, but my kids don't listen to me without ear pro (laughs) on. So you put hearing protection on and they have a reason not to listen to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wish I, when I get, heavily got back into shooting. I wish that I would have used hearing protection. I was, oh, no, no big deal. We're going to be okay now. I'm half deaf.
1: Well, and it's funny. Like, if you ever see us talk to our dad, we got to (laughs) yell.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I can't hear out of my left ear. My dad can't hear out of his left ear. My grandfather couldn't hear out of his left ear. You know, it was quite the win for all of us.
1: Yes, and I and I'm sure there's a lot of people. Th- I mean, we grew up. If we were going to do a lot of shooting, yes, we'd go put ear pro on. But
0: if you're just going out for a couple, yeah, no big deal.
1: And it, it was a completely different world back then, though, too. So
0: <laughs> we weren't as well educated. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So when you decided to go to school and become a machinist. Was that all strictly for l- gun purposes?
1: Yes, so the thought back then was Dad said we could come back and work at the shop, however, we had to have some sort of degree to fall back on in case in
0: case a machinist degree i mean that's
1: well, and it was a twofold degree because one it helped it helped him because it filled in void. But like he said, his thought process at that time too was you always need, people will always need machinist. Mm-hmm. You always need people that can program the machines. Even as stuff becomes more robotic and more automated, somebody has got to program that stuff. So that was his thought back then is this way you have something to fall back on.
0: No matter what, no matter what. I was thoughtful of him.
1: Yes. <laughs> you know, and it, you know, it's a whole other rabbit hole because it's a different world now. You see so many people, you know, arguing whether or not you need a degree or not. But back then, that was the
0: thing. Is well, they'd been pushing degrees since yes. the fifties. You know, since cleaning out of World War II, it was educate, educate, educate. Everyone has to go to college. Everyone needs this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and the other part of that
1: is knowing kind of what I wanted to come back and do. It didn't really make sense to go spend four years at a university, racking up student loans,
2: mm-hmm.
1: knowing a lot of that may not apply to what I was going to go do.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And in, you know, in hindsight, it's it's funny because as we've evolved and we've learned, you know, there's obviously you learn some stuff in school, but so much of what you learn in business. Is never found in a textbook.
0: Yeah. It's not, a, it's, you don't learn 90% of it in school. No. I mean, just general life skills.
1: And what's interesting is for years, I would never really look outside of our industry. Because I always thought we were, what we did was different.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was a family business and a firearms business. So other stuff's not going to apply. But as I got older and I started traveling more and experiencing more other business owners and being open to different ideas, you find out it's all the same. You know, it's a people business, you know, like with what you do, it's an experience. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, the product is great, but the experience helps that product along. Mm -hmm. So, and that's kind of what we've learned and what we've been doing a lot, trying to do more of over the past 5 10 15 years is obviously you have to have the product to work with but it comes down to customer service how do you treat how do you treat employees and customers
0: yeah well it also comes down to customer experience with the product yes right and we we were talking about this yesterday you guys work with someone who took their parents out shooting and and they shot 22s and they just had The best time of their lives doing it yes you know and and that speaks to the product and that's how that's what you guys spend all that time developing like of course you always ensure you know the customer when they come in the doors or when you're working with the customer and and figuring everything out and dealing with the customer but on the back end You want their experience with your product to be amazing, which it sounds like that's what gets delivered, you
1: know? And that's why we focus a lot, even in our marketing, on just fun, you know, because so much in our industry is politically driven, you know, pro 2A, obviously, self-defense, being more capable, you know, all those things, which are all very heavy subjects, Mm Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I feel like it gets lost why people initially got into shooting. Because going to the range is fun. Yeah. So we try to portray that more. And and that's the one thing that 22s allow you to do. You know, you can, like you were referencing the story, they can take their parents out. They can take their kids out. And, you know, it's to me there's no better stress reliever than going to the range. Mm-hmm. But it becomes so much fun where you have people you know like in some ways if the real world gets removed for a while
0: it does and I can attest to that 100% you know when I would go to the range and I would you know get everything set out on the table in front of me you know immediately even before the tables set in front of me when I sit at my bench or you know, stand at my bench, however I'm shooting that day, and I'm grabbing my stuff and I start unloading everything, I have my ear protection in, and I'm looking at what's in front of me, It instantly I go into almost a meditative state. And I always would try to describe to new shooters uh, when I would take people out to the range or try to explain to people the fulfillment that I was getting from handling firearms and shooting firearms. Um, I've never done it competitively and I, that just seems like too much of a can of worms for me to <laughs> want to get into. I thought about three again, but that's like, ah, it's too much. But, um, so I'd get set up and, and even cause I'd draw from the holster a lot. And when I would train from the holster, even drawing my holster and coming up and getting on target and then, you know, focus, heartbeat, heartbeat, you know, shoot and, get into my entire body's rhythm, even though the percussion, because I was shooting a 45, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of sensory overload and everything like that, whether it's, it's the noise or, you know, the feel of the recoil or anything like that. The meditative state that comes out of that is unparalleled to almost any meditation that I've ever participated in. And it, To
1: me, it requires 100% focus and presence Mm -hmm. because like you said, when you're getting your breathing set, you know, whether you're, whatever type of shooting you're doing, your mind can't go other places. Mm -mm. You are 100, and in today's world, it's hard to be 100% focused on anything, but that's the one area that. Many times that people are 100 percent focused on what they're doing.
0: Well, and you you have to be because you're handling a loaded you're handling yes. a loaded firearm. You have to be conscious of where that barrel is, where your finger is, what's happening, what's around you. You know what's in the peripheral, what's your backstop, what's behind your backstop. There's so much that's encompassed in it. You know, I think I think a lot of people miss that point of yeah. what's going on. I mean, shooters obviously get it. Most shooters, I should you know, say. Not all shooters. But. And the
1: one thing is, you know, obviously more people have their phones at the range now for social media purposes and all that stuff. hmm But a lot of times I'll encourage people, I'm like, just leave your phone at home or, mm-hmm. or put it in the truck and just go out and truly enjoy shooting. You know, because if you're out there for even 30 minutes, that's a fairly long time to be on the range if you're shooting that whole time. hmm But it... it you know, just that thirty minutes can completely clear your mind, get you away from any troubles, worries that you may have had that morning, that afternoon, whatever it is. And like you said, it's truly a meditative way to get to get out of your own head a lot of times.
0: Yeah, and you're also you know, and and especially for women and I always in my you know, for me I always thought that it was so amazing when I would watch female shooters learn and develop their skill and their talent and how much more confidence they would feel not only in in their everyday life of everything they're doing, but they're proficient with something that can protect themselves and save themselves from a terrible situation where maybe in other circumstances, they wouldn't have any protection. They wouldn't be able to feel that confidence or not comfortability. I feel like might be an incorrect word, but the comfortability of being able to assess that sort of situation know what to do how to execute what they need to do and get out of there and be safe yeah
1: and it empowers them and mm-hmm. i mean for better or worse we're, you know we're not going to go there but there's yeah. a lot of single moms that want to be able to protect their kids yeah you know and that's the one thing we've noticed over the last 20 months or whatever since covid started a lot of people have bought firearms a lot of new people mm-hmm And I encourage them, I'm like, don't just, buying the firearm doesn't protect you.
0: Now you need training.
1: Now you need to train (laughs) it. Now you need, you know, you need to go out and shoot. You need to, you need to practice. You need to become proficient. And like you said, then that sense of confidence just naturally shows up because they're like, hey, I can, I don't want to have to defend myself. But I can. But I can. I can defend my son or daughter or.
0: And that, I think also that confidence, it's a trickle-down effect. It affects every aspect of their life. Yes. You know, and it, the other aspects have nothing to do with firearms or protecting themselves. It's just a confidence booster across the board where people, and I think it goes for men as well, you know, and, and especially for men that are new to firearms or learning and understanding firearms, it, it brings a whole new self um, worth you know self-esteem yes to whatever it is that they offer to the table as far as what their abilities are and what they can do and accomplish in life
1: you know and I've even seen that same type thing with a lot of young kids there's certain junior shooters that well they're not even juniors anymore but they got into firearms because their parents were trying to find something that they liked you know they they weren't into the the more popular sports of football, basketball, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and quite honestly, the one that I'm thinking of, he was getting into trouble. So he found competitive shooting and his dad has told me it was like flipping a switch.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: All of a sudden confidence built. He, He was discovering something he was good at. And just because back the responsibility of being on a range and all that, his entire life started changing in school. He became more obedient. He became
0: more disciplined,
1: a, more disciplined, a much better student. And he, his dad told me, he goes, initially, I would hold it over him. If you get in trouble at school, there's no range time this weekend. You know, you do your part, and I promise you we'll go to the range every Saturday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said it worked like you can't believe. Yeah. And, and it, he what? became an excellent competitive shooter, and I th- I haven't talked to him in a couple, uh, in a little while now, but I think he's still in it, you know, but it goes to, it, it, there's a much bigger thing than just putting rounds down range. Yeah,
0: I agree. And,
1: you know, and to follow just quickly on that yeah, point go for it, I always comment and talk to people. I'm like, if you take a new shooter to the range, the first time they hit their target that they're aiming for, watch their face a smile breaks out like you can't believe every single time.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) It's almost like a sense of, you know, empowerment. It is. And it's even more so I've seen it when you get an adult that has never shot.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, and obviously there's a lot of things to take, you know, and I feel like sometimes we try to push people too fast in our industry. Oh, you want to go to the range? Okay, let's make you shoot everything. (laughs)
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Which is where our 22s come in. And this is any 22, not just ours, but... You know, there's not a lot of recoil, and it's a great way to introduce somebody like that that may have been fearful or afraid of shooting. And then once they do that, they're like, okay, what's next? I want to do something a larger caliber. I want to graduate. And that confidence just (laughs) builds, Yeah. and it's fun to watch.
0: Yeah, well, it's something that I like that you brought up with um, the kid that you were talking about, and it kind of redirected his whole life. And what I've found also with firearms is that when you're getting into firearms and I think it's almost not no matter what age, but when you're at a comprehendable age of what it means when you do something bad that can take away your privileges for the rest of your life. You know, I think that that's extremely helpful because then you start understanding like, I love this. This is so much fun. And if, if, if I do, you know, something like this that maybe was the bad road they were planning on going down, myself included in that, you know, if I if I do anything like this and I I go to prison or I go to jail or I, you know, catch a case or anything like that, this eliminates all these activities and everything that comes along with these activities from my yes. life for the rest of my life. And there's... Very little chance of getting that back. Yeah. And that, I think, is a huge push and in the in the correct direction for people to want to hold on to their rights and want to hold on to their privileges. Well, and
1: even for me, when I was, you know, young and dumb, which some people still argue, I'm not young anymore, but I might still be the other. It happens. <laughs> you know, always in the back of my mind was, I have to be careful because, you know, it's my name on the manufacturer's license, the firearms license. You know, it's, it's not just my gun rights that would be taken away. It's my entire livelihood.
2: Yeah, it's and, your industry.
1: It's your business. And as we've grown, now we have families
0: you know, that support or yeah, families that depend on you.
1: Yeah, because in some cases, we have husband and wife that work for us. Mm-hmm. So their entire livelihood, you know, comes from our company. You know, they're kids, you know, so there's a lot of responsibility there that, you know, you you have to be careful when you're making some of those decisions. Like, yes, I realize it's probably not going to be an issue, but no, I'm not going down that road. I can't take that chance. Yeah. And I think exactly what you were saying with young kids or when they're going through that. Through adolescence. Yeah, I mean, and... I'll say this, like when I go to a lot of competitive matches and talk to a lot of the young kids, they're some of the most respectful kids that age that you'll encounter. And I think a lot of it comes from the discipline that they've had to show on the range to get to where they're at.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, they can't, yes, I mean, young kids are going to horse around and do all that. But when it's time to, you know, when the guns come out, you know, they're acting like we have 11, 12 year olds that are acting like adults or much older than they really are. Yeah. You know, there was, we were just at a match last month and there was a, I want to say an 11 year old and a 13 year old girl that were there that just watching them carry themselves and watching the way they handled their firearms on, um, on each stage, you would have guessed they were like 25 years old. Really? Yeah.
0: How cool. How cool is that?
1: and it um along those same lines it's interesting so we sponsor several shooters and a lot of the, them do this. this isn't just our team but they'll go up and after each stage you know they're thanking the ROs you know shaking their hand giving them a thank you and at the end of the match they came up to me they're like just so you know you have the most respectful shooters of anybody we've seen and i'm like that's no credit to me i'm like that's those kids and their parents cuz we don't ha- It's not like we tell them to do that.
0: Yeah, We're not their parents.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're not their parents, you know, but that's just who they've become. Yeah. And I went, made sure and told each one of our shooters, I'm like, this is what people think of you guys. I'm like, you know, they gave me the credit, but I'm like, I'm not the one that deserves any of it. Yeah. You go tell your parents, thank you, you know, and be proud of yourselves for doing that at each match.
0: Yeah. And if that's not a family business, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so, I mean, as far as carrying the legacy of what your father built.
1: Yeah, and that's that's what we try to do is keep it, like I said, even though we've grown outside the family, mm-hmm. we still try to keep it as a family, which is, you know, you'll see later when we get together. Like, we all, I mean, know each other, we get along, we hang out, we have events together.
0: You've got the most amazing clubhouse I've ever seen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that was built primarily for holding events for our employees mm-hmm. you know we get together we watch ufc fights we watch football games you know well we have golf outings together we'll do all sorts of things and it's the thing that we found is when we built when we bought our second location you you we lost some of that camaraderie that we had from everybody getting together all the time mm-hmm. because now we're in two locations and some of the people don't see each other other than when we have events So we're like, in order to keep that family atmosphere, we got to find a way to get them together more than at like a Christmas party every year. Mm -hmm. So we'll try to do something at least once a month, if not more often, even more so as we're getting in like the holiday time, we'll try to do more events just to get them together and, and hang out and do everything but talk business.
0: Yeah. Have more to it. Yes. And there's so much to be said for that. You know, I mean, I, I worked at a place for quite a while and there was no sense of community inside the workplace whatsoever and that really, I think, affects the quality of the product, the quality of care that goes into everything that's going out the door and uh, mentality of the employees.
1: And that was something we had to focus on because there was a time that we didn't focus on that. And as we grew, we lost some of that. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to get it back. Mm -hmm. You know, momentum is a funny thing that when you lose it, it will all of a sudden, um, it's tough to get it back.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely
0: it is. Should we we, pause for a second?
1: Yeah, just one second. Yeah, go for it.
0: So, You're good. (laughs) With the development of it and getting to where you are now and, and being primarily focused on the product, but also being focused on your staff and the livelihood of your employees and their comfort and the community. How do you feel like that's helped develop momentum for your company?
1: I feel like it's been everything, you know, and it's, it's tough to put your finger on like one thing, but the more that we have done that, the more our business has grown, you know, and our reach has grown and it's easy to always look at like metrics of just like on a balance sheet. But what I try to look at is just even our place, like kind of in the industry, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: because I always said, I've said this for a long time, we always wanted to be the Rolex or rimfire. We may not be for everybody, but at least it's a consideration when people go to buy a rimfire. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the biggest things that we've had to learn was, and this goes back to the conversation that we had about our dads. Was learning to empower people in their roles to do, let them go do their job.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, to me, nothing kills culture faster than if somebody has an idea or a, something new that they want to try, and you say, "No, we've always done it this way." Yeah. Thanks for talking. You know, thanks, but no That's thanks. That's a place to go to die, man. Yes, and eventually you'll kill. Nobody wants to bring new ideas because they're like, nobody's going to listen anyway. And to me, like one of the biggest things for me personally that I had to learn was to put my ego aside. And I don't say that like from a, like I would brag type thing. Yeah. But to let people do what they do and not think that you had to have your fingers in every single aspect of it or that your ways were always better. Yeah. And as we've done that, it allows, you know, like for me, it allows me to focus on a very specific part of our business. Obviously, we have to worry about the entire thing. But like, I can leave for a week for an event or something like that. And I know our machine shop side of things is going to run just as well as when I'm here. I know that our, you know, our staff that's on the phone is going to treat customers just as if we were here directing them. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a very big thing because, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to burn out the way, you know, because, let me back up, because obviously being a business owner, you're still always involved even when you're on vacation you're never on vacation or even if you're at an event you're always you're still in it you're still in it but when I get to do the parts of it that I love it doesn't it doesn't feel like work a lot of times yeah there's obviously still days that I have to do stuff that I don't like to do but then there's more of those days where you know I'm out getting to promote our product proud of what we've done and it really like re-energizes, you know, like I told my wife the other day, I said, I'm having more fun doing what I do now than I ever have. (laughs) And and I've been doing this now for, you know, 25 years. But I think a lot of that goes to getting to work with the people that I get to work with every day. You know, it's not, it takes a lot of the stress out of making sure everything is being done and it allows like in my role, it allows us to grow our business versus constantly being reactive to problems and issues that come up.
0: You brought up a really good point a minute ago that was about, you know, being able to step back and step out of the way and let people do what they do and, and allowing them to shine as employees. And, um, my experience in that has been, you know, I worked for a company for a long time and I brought them a lot of very profitable profitable ideas. And um, what ended up burning me out in that company, you know, as upper management for myself, I was upper management and obviously dealing with the two uh, people that were above me. It got to a point where no matter how good of an idea or or anything that I brought to the table, oh no, we don't do that. Oh no, we can't do that. You know? And that burnt me out. Burnt me out overnight. Yeah. And being able to recognize that yourself as an employer and you know, maybe having had experience with that and, and learning and understanding that and then recognize it and figure out a solution for it and take action to get around that has, has probably helped your company immensely. Yes, it has. And,
1: you know, I've learned this from, you know, we, we live in an amazing time where we can listen to podcasts of super successful people mm-hmm. that have made all these mistakes, and we get to listen to them. And, like, one of the things that I have learned is – You know, yes, obviously money that people make is important to their livelihood. Mm -hmm. But you'll hear a lot of these people say that after a certain point of money, that's not what keeps employees at jobs. It's having their ideas heard, feeling like they are part of a team and important and not just a, that they're not just being manipulated for the owner's Profits. Successful growth. Correct.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that completely.
1: And, you know, as when you start to look at things that way and you, you know, you realize that when your team succeeds, your, your company can't do anything but succeed. You know, it's, I, I don't see how it could happen any other way that if you know. Well,
0: and that goes to what we were talking about yesterday is people building each other up and the yes. growth collectively you know and how important that growth is and what you're talking about is a complete testament to that you know and and when your team succeeds you succeed and you recognize that as an employer and a business owner and uh, that's tremendous because yeah. not a lot of people are willing to step back from their own pride and their own ego oh. and allow that to actually happen i had a uh coach
1: that I worked with for a while break it down very simply to what you're saying he's like you know if you have a house right now and you tear down your neighbor's house your house isn't any bigger (laughs) he's like there's no benefit he said there's no benefit to that he goes and not only that you just destroyed the real estate in your neighborhood he's like just think about when you're around people how that works Mm -hmm. tearing them down you know keeping them from growing doesn't make you any better so he's like if you can bring them up obviously it just brings the value of you up as well mm-hmm. and that's like probably one of the biggest things that i've had to learn is that part of it the you know because for so long i was so so involved in like the nuts and bolts of the business of uh, the machining side and being that as we've been able to grow, it's allowed me to step away and make some of those realizations, and and we have a long ways to go, and I have a long ways to go. But
0: yeah, there's always a long ways to go. They yes, but it made a lot of.
1: I feel like we've made a lot of progress in the last twenty years. Yeah, you know. But I I would like to think that twenty years from now it'll be we'll look back on this time. This time, and be like, what were we thinking? We were we, we had, had so much had so to learn. Much to go. <laughs> yeah, you know.
0: It's nonstop.
1: But that's the part that is fun is constantly evolving and learning and, you know, and something we've been doing a lot of too is, you know, it allows us to go out and do events like with people that are maybe not industry insiders,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but bring them into our world. And then we get immersed into their world, you know, kind of like you're talking about bringing up, you know, helping everybody out. You know, we've done it. You know, we're friendly with, you know, like Montana Montana Knife Company, Sorenex.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, where on the outside looking in, there's no correlation to those businesses. But when you get together and you all start working together at events.
0: It's a wild-ass it's a, time. It's a wild-ass time. And, <laughs>
1: and it's crazy how everything can just foster from, like, one certain event, you know, relationships, friends, you know, business. It, it all goes hand-in-hand. Hand. Yeah. Completely. Yeah.
0: It really does. It really does, man. There was a story you told me earlier this morning about growth inside your company and machinists and employee. Do you want to go into that story at all about uh, the guy who had some codes? Oh, yeah. And I I just I want to reflect on that because I feel like that was a, a teachable moment for you where you took it in stride, and it was a teachable moment for you. You took it as a teachable moment instead of not taking it as a teachable yeah. moment.
1: So what it was is prior to, I believe it was 2008, I was doing all of our programming and machine work. And we hired a young kid to come in. Who He came with a lot of credentials. His you know instructor from and to High School said he was one of the best kids he had through. And he would have certain ideas on how we could do things that he thought would speed them up and I said well yeah that's great but let's just keep doing it this way which was because that's the way I had programmed it and in order for us to go to his way and I have to say that my way wasn't as good Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I fought it for a while even when he proved to me that it would be almost twice as fast my instinct was well that's great but let's just keep doing it my way it's easier and finally I gave in and he started doing things his way and I'm like I sat back, I'm like, why on earth would I have ever fought that in the first place? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And that was probably like that first real teaching moment of sometimes you just have to get out of the way and let people do what they do well. And, you know, 13 years later, he's still working here. He runs our machine shop. Pretty much the, he is the head man out there. I shouldn't say pretty much. And, you know, he does things and has ideas that I look at. him like, I would have never thought about doing it that way. Hmm. And it's funny, you know. There's something interesting on that too. He's evolved where he went through the phase of wanting to do it his way. But as he's gotten older, older and evolved, he's more open to other ideas as well on how to do things.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, and and that's where it gets neat. Like from a owner's perspective, is as you see young kids that you hired grow, grow and evolve. You know, obviously in mature. their role, but just as people.
0: Yeah, mature. Yes. That's so <laughs> <laughs> bad, man. That's so cool. So we were taught, you mentioned shows and going to shows. And this year you're doing something a little bit different than you have ever done yes. in 26 years?
1: For me personally, it's been 26 years, but we started going um, to the SHOT Show in 1991. Mm-hmm. And we've gone every That's year. That's a long time. We've gone every year, except we missed 1999 because we had a shop fire that burned us to the ground,
2: mm-hmm. and oh, we, we were still
1: recovering. It was, the, the fire had been a year prior, but like after we rebuilt and got back up to speed, it was a lot of burnout, a lot of we need to focus on our products. and Even though we were back operational, we were not back We up, need to get uh, some
0: traction first.
1: <laughs> yes. It was more important to stay in the shop than it was to go to the SHOT Show. So outside of that year and last year, because of COVID, when they canceled the show, we've been there every year since 91. And this year they did a new booth selection. So everybody's going to have new booths, new spots. And initially we were very excited about that cause we're like, everybody's going to be ready to go. Everybody's going to be back. But then as we got closer and the state of Nevada has a mask mandate in place yet. And they start bringing out real numbers. They've talked about a reduced attendance of at least 20%. That's big. I feel like it'll be they're higher than that.
0: that. For sure. They're yeah, lowballing that. Because that.
1: that's the show putting that out. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I would guess it's going to be closer to 30 to 40% reduced attendance. And so we are going to go as a 10, because I still like seeing everybody that'll be there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of times it's that only time of year we get to see them. So we're still going to go and attend, but. It finally came down to just a diminishing return on the amount of money that the show takes not not just financially but just time resources
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know it it's about a two month process of getting ready for the show where you have all hands on deck building product for the show, building your display, your marketing materials and the more we talk about it is. It used to be a mainly just a buying show, but even that part of it's evolved into other things now. So what we're going to do is try to plan more events where we can be at the range with the consumers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because ultimately for us, our best our best advertising is when we let people try our product. And so the more we can get to the range and the more we can get word of mouth advertising going, We feel the better off we are, so it's it'll be interesting. And I, you know, like I said, I still don't know if we made the right decision, (laughs) but we've made it, and now we got to go with it. Yeah, and we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, well, and I think you brought up a good point in taking that capital and reinvesting it into interactive events instead of a booth and a show. Will probably benefit so much more in the long term as far as relationship building with customers and clients.
1: Because for those that don't know that are listening, the SHOT Show is industry only. Mm -hmm. So you're only reaching dealers and media. You know, it's not a consumer show where you're interacting with the end consumer. And I feel like a lot of the world has gone more direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. And obviously in our industry, we cannot do that because firearms have to go through a dealer and through all the – the protocols, but I still feel like the end consumer wants to be much more involved with the company. You know, I just talked about this with a friend the other day. When we grew up, we had no idea what company stood for. I mean, we didn't know if Nike was on one side of the aisle or the other.
0: <laughs> yeah. It didn't matter. It
1: didn't matter. It wasn't an issue. No, nobody talked about it. It,
0: it. That That stuff drives me nuts because... In the world that I grew up in, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s, less in the 2000s, that whatever side of the aisle or whatever bullshit virtue signaling, whatever, that didn't matter. No. That was never an issue. Those are personal choices, personal preferences of the individual. And that didn't represent the company. It didn't represent what was going on with the company or where they stood on anything. Companies stay out of it. Sports stayed out of it. You know what I mean? Yes. And And it drives me nuts to watch this, what's happening for the last 15 or 20 years, 15, I'd say more so. on 15. It does me as well.
1: You know, and I feel like now consumers, they want to get to know because of that, they want to get to know the people behind the brand as much as they do the product themselves. Mm -hmm. So we feel it's important to get out and be with the consumers. You know, because especially the younger, you know, people younger than us, they grew up like, okay, what does this company stand for? Mm -hmm. What do these guys do? You know, they they grew up having that immediate contact with the people behind the brand and the brand itself. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, when we grew up, we... It was, did you like those shoes or not? Did you? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like, I wonder who they contributed money to yesterday. Yeah. Or I wonder what ad they're running that is going to divide everybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How are we going to be divisive?
1: Yeah. How can we be more divisive than we already are?
0: <laughs> Tries me nuts. So I, this would be a good, good point to lead into the second amendment. Um, Coming from California, you know, and the just appalling, <laughs> appalling state of affairs that is the state of California. For me, I think it was 2012 or 2013 in the state when they started doing long gun registration, and I, so your pistols were registered um, to your person, to your house, you know, like on 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 a list. Uh, then it switched also into long guns. And that was kind of when I got out of it, um, you know, after fighting that and doing whatever I could do to help in that fight. And, you know, shortly, I think it was 2014 was when I was like, man, I'm just done. <laughs> and I can't remember what law had changed in California at that time, but some law had changed in it. Basically, like I had been compliant with whatever bullshit they were throwing out there just so... I didn't want to lose my rights and then, then at some point they changed the law and it pretty much turned me into a felon overnight. And I was like, "No, man, I'm fucking done. Yeah. I'm not I'm not buying any more guns in the state of California. I'll wait until I move." And how do you feel the deterioration of the 2nd Amendment? And I I mean, we could go into many other amendments that are slowly eroding and being deteriorated along with the second amendment you know i think that our entire constitution is just slowly being shredded before our eyes um how do you feel that's that's affecting do you feel like we have hope in the future do you feel like like i know the nra used to be a huge fighting force yeah i don't know if it's as much of a fighting force as it used to be i feel like they've been completely they unfortunately have their
1: own internal struggles right now yeah You know, the good news is there are some other organizations stepping up, Mm -hmm. but what scares me is, you know, and we've seen it like you referenced it with all of our other freedoms is it becomes just, you know, one small piece here, one small piece there to where people like, oh, why would that matter? You know, it's just that, why would that matter?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But the thing that we've learned in this industry is those freedoms never come back, you know, and they just slowly chip away, chip away, you know, and then, you know, cause like if you look at where California is now, it didn't go from a great two A state to where it is. I mean, it was slowly over time
2: mm-hmm.
0: and well, even, and I'm just using California because I yeah. lived there. Right. And, and there's, there's a lot of other states. That are following suit with yes. California, but there no. was, there's a 10 day wait, right? So you, you go, you buy a firearm, there's a 10 day wait. And then I think at, I want to demand, and I'm just so off cause I've been so out of that circle for so long, um, or just not paid attention to it because it was so just over the top. Um, they had overturned it. So there would, if you own a firearm already, there would no longer be a 10-day wait. And then they overturned that. So there's still a 10-day wait no matter how many firearms you own. Well, the frustrating part about it, too, is a
1: lot of California isn't that way in their way of thinking.
0: Well, California makes up for, I want to say, 20% of the gun yeah. sales nationwide. And, and so
1: much of that is controlled. Obviously, you know this in, you know, L.A., San Francisco, Sacramento, the— you know, but the, there's a lot of areas of California that are big hunting areas and huge two A
0: proponents proponents. And there's even a lot of people in San Francisco, Sacramento, and Los Angeles so, that are major gun enthusiasts. Yes. So we've had this conversation before,
1: and I think where it starts is, you know, the, the number varies from eight to ten to twelve million new gun owners over the last year and a half.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is to me, we have to become as an industry much more proactive. We spend all of our time defending stuff that makes no sense. You know, you will hear on the news that AR doesn't stand for assault rifle. If we're trying to make a case, though, to the anti-gun crowd or even those in the middle, those points don't make sense. They, mm-hmm. they, they don't care that what it stands for. Yeah. We have to be much better about, you know, the reason, you know, being proactive on You know like we talked about before being able to defend you know a woman being able to defend herself where many times they're obviously not going to be as strong or you know as be able to be as physical you know as a man could be so that is their equalizer Mm -hmm. you know i think we need to make more cases like that than waste all our time you know
0: defending 30 caliber clips per second
1: yes (laughs) You know, because if you're anti-gun, you don't care what the actual facts are. Facts It doesn't matter. You know, the anti-gunners, a lot of times, you know, we always get on them because they talk about full automatic, you know, fully semi-automatic or whatever they, I can't even repeat what they say half the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But like to the people that we're trying to persuade, they're not interested in the technical terms. Mm
0: -hmm. Like we are.
1: Like we are. And we spend so much time defending that side of it. You know, like, you know, I'll go back to the whole AR standing for assault rifle. We've been defending that argument for the last 20 years, and all it was was a narrative that the anti-gunners put out there, yeah. and we gave it the credence by having to defend it.
0: For 20 years. For
1: 20 years, or probably longer.
0: Yeah. How much money went into that? Yeah,
1: you know, so, and I I, I don't have, obviously have all the answers, but we need to be yeah. much more proactive than I feel like we are always reactive defending their talking points, mm-hmm. I agree. And I think a lot of that is maybe as an industry we have to be more open. You know, and we see this a lot where people are like, well, I'd like to shoot, but I don't know about this type of firearm. firearm. And a lot of us would be like, well, then get out. You don't belong, you know, in our industry. And I'm like, we need to be much better about. Inclusive. inclusive Inclusivity. You know, and say, okay. then then just go shoot this one and then ask questions. Why, you know, what is it about
0: this that takes you you, away from that takes
1: you away from it? Yeah. And then you can, in a very civil manner, be like, well, that, you know, that AR 15 is no different than this rifle here. Other than the way it looks.
0: One of my favorite things that ever happened, I had a anti gunner at my house and we sat down and, and I have a collection of different calibers of ammunition and I, and I put out a, Fifty Cal, a thirty three seventy eight, a seven STW, a three hundred wind mag, uh three oh eight, a, a thirty thirty, um uh um what was the other one? It was I think it was three hundred blackout, uh a five five six, a seventeen HMR, and a twenty two. And uh I said, okay. So we have all these am- all this ammunition in front of us. All these cartridges. Here they are. So, and it was right after Sandy Hook. Okay, it happened. So I'm going to date packed. <laughs> How long ago this was? And I said, so I want you to tell me which one of these bullets, which one of these cartridges, was shot out of the AR- the AR-15 at Sandy hook and instantly they grabbed the 50 caliber round and they we're like, this is the one. And I was like, all right, we're going to discuss this for a second yeah. because you're so far off. It was actually the third from the last round. That's one of the smallest rounds, you know? And huh. and then I explained to them the development of that caliber and that it was not developed. Literally it was not developed to kill. And, you know, yeah. I gave them a background and a little bit of the history on it and, you know, the ideology behind it when we created it and what we were doing. And they were like, wow, I never really realized that, you know. You know, and you bring up an excellent point. I've been on
1: flights before where I will talk to somebody and it's, whether it's, I have one of our shirts on or they'll say, what are you doing? I'm like traveling for work. And so obviously firearms comes up and I'll try to have a very civil conversation, but it's interesting. Like sometimes they'll be like, well, you know, I, I guess that's okay, but I just don't understand why people can buy guns off the Internet.
0: Oh, and, and, I'll say,
1: <laughs> and I'll say, you know, are you open to hearing how that actually works? And I had this one lady who was clearly anti-gun. I said, well, what happens is you place the order. It still has to ship to a licensed dealer. You still have to go into that store, fill out, you know, the par- proper paperwork and go through all the background checks, all that stuff.
0: Well, and a lot of the problems that we've seen aren't coming out on the dealers' end. They're coming out on the government's end on the systems that they have in place, whether I believe it's the NICS system or— Yes,
1: Nix. the NIX background system.
0: you know, and, and I believe that a lot of the errors, at least from what I remember back when I was really involved, a lot of the errors are, are more so falling on the government's end and their lack of communication— and, on their computer that, systems that is a lot of it and the elephant in the room is
1: the separation of mental health versus the records and and that's a whole nother can rabbit of worms. can oh, of yeah. worms and and i really don't have answers there
2: <laughs> you
0: don't want to battle big pharma today
1: yeah so <laughs> you know but there was a stretch where all those you know mass killings we had or whatever you want to call them you know aurora mm-hmm. um You name it, they were all on, you know, certain forms of, you know. Pharmaceuticals. Prescription drugs.
0: antipsychotics. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a. Depressants. All of it. You read the side effects of that stuff. It's insane.
1: On the industry side, there's a group. The NSSF, they're the ones that actually put the SHOT Show on. They're not as known as the NRA, but they're more of like a lobbying group for firearms manufacturers. Mm -hmm. They've been advocating for the last 10 to 12 years, I think. To fix Nix, which is the um, what you just referenced about trying to fix a lot of these loophole—not loopholes—I'm not even going to use that word. Short because they Shortfalls of their computer yes.
0: system and the algorithms and everything that's going on there.
1: Yes, and say you know this is where the you know problem is that we see it, and it's such a hard thing to battle. You know, and take that a step further. The issue that we see now is. There's no, there's no having a conversation with anybody that disagrees with you anymore in our culture. Yeah. It just doesn't exist. No. I mean, whether it's, you know, firearms, you know, there's no civility. Yeah. There's no civility. You either, you know, you agree with me. And if you don't, you're wrong. Yeah. Or I just hate you. I'm never going to talk to you again.
0: Mm -hmm. And I've watched families get destroyed because of that. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's terrifying.
1: You know, and yeah, it's, it's tough as I try to explain it to my kids that, you know, this isn't the way we grew up. (laughs) You know, I grew up, I I obviously knew that firearms were always, you know, part of what my parents voted on. Mm -hmm. But as a 15 year old, I couldn't have told you if they were Republican, independent, Democrat. I mean, I had no idea at the time. We never talked about it. Yeah. Now, I mean—
0: It's a driving force in every conversation that happens yes. in America every single day, all day long. And, I mean, to me, it's it's planned. It is 100% yes. planned and, that way. You know, even I've been following the news on this Kyle Rittenhouse,
1: you know, case, and just, like, the—how quick, like, the media and everything is to judge things. You know, it's no longer innocent until proven guilty. It's whatever the media decides, and then we'll get to the court case down the road. Mm-hmm. And they have such power of destroying somebody's life by something. You know, I just talked to somebody else about this. It could be something that you said 10 years ago. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure I said things 20 years ago that I would like to take back. And Me too. And I would be ashamed that I even said them. Yeah, I mean, but but I've evolved as a person, and that's not who I am now.
0: Right. Well, I was a drug addict and an alcoholic, right? And I, I lived in my car, and I was a terrible person and took part in a lot of terrible things. Those in no way, shape, or form reflect the individual that I am today. And, you know, I mean, it's that that's kind of what's scary about the situation. But then you look at someone in a political party. And I won't, you know, point out any individual, which I could on a million cases, but you look at a person who gets voted into office because, well, five years ago they were, you know, against abortion and they were against gay marriage and they were against these hot button issues, but now they're, they're for them and it's okay that they switched. It's okay that they had a different opinion and they evolved as a person. But it's not okay for anybody else that might be on a different political side of the spectrum. You know, and that's where it gets fucked up and that's where reality to me is no longer reality. They're not they're not going off facts, they're going off a political agenda. And I I wonder too, a lot of today with all the surveillance and the monitoring and, and all of the different places where they're recording everything that everybody says. I mean it's They record almost every phone call that happens in America. They have data centers to do it. There's there's no debate about that. How much blackmail material do they have on every single person that's in Congress and, you know, every single person that's in Washington making decisions just based off recorded shit? Yes. You know, and how much do they all leverage that against each other on a constant basis?
1: Well, not. You know, we even discussed that, you know, like if you look at like what happened in the NFL with John Gruden being let go as the Raiders coach Mm -hmm. out of like 650,000 emails, you know, they found some stuff that he said 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was obviously stuff that I'm sure he regrets and should have never been said, but at what point, you know, these coaches have been around 20 and 30 years. Do they start going back through all their Yeah. You know, was it just a witch hunt at, against him because somebody had
0: well they just needed to find the information so they sent the people out to find it yeah and that's all it is
1: yeah it had nothing to do with they were just i mean it' such power that they hold from being able to do this stuff is scary mm-hmm. like you just said with the blackmail thing
2: mm-hmm.
1: they decided they want him out and they were going to go find something to give cancel them reason him. yes and they
0: canceled him. it's crazy and what's crazy to me too is is that as much as we hate cancel culture we do it to ourselves. Yes. We will try to cancel our own, our people out. And we spend so much time on our own side. Excuse me, man, that's just <laughs> been the last 24 hours. That squirt. I drank. The, nobody should ever drink that. <laughs> yeah. No, nobody. I mean, uh, it's debatable, um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, the, uh, where was I? Oh, how we cancel ourselves! How we cancel ourselves! Yes. Cancel culture, um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but yeah, what's what's crazy to me is how, as much as we hate, whether it be virtue signaling or cancel culture or anything like that. Yet we all go out and do virtue signaling and cancel culture when it supports our agenda. Yes, you know. So it's such a it's such a double-edged sword, and I fucking clown on everybody for it. And I'm guilty of it. I mean, oh, if yeah. I'm being honest. Yeah, I mean, I am too. And there's a lot of times when I try not to be, and I and I really do. But sometimes I can't help myself because I'm just. Yeah. It happens. I'm human,
1: right? <laughs> and it and it's easy to do, though. Like, I,
0: you know, how many times does
1: somebody, I'm like, well, I'm done watching their movie. Yeah.
2: yeah. And
1: then I'm like, that's exactly what I hate happens. You know, yeah. everybody's in, you know, but I think there's a degree, everybody's entitled to an opinion. Mm-hmm. It's when they become so set in their opinion that they can't even see the facts ahead of them. You know, like, even if you look back, like with Trump being president and the stuff that people said, I mean,
0: well, here's a really great example. And, and you brought this up because I didn't even know it happened because I stopped paying attention to politics a long time ago. Our president came out two nights ago and said whatever he said. Yes. Right. And I, don't, I just don't want to repeat it. And, uh, if it was Trump or a Republican that said what he had said, they would be called a bigot from the fifties. Yes. Period. There's no way around that. That would not get international news coverage. It'd be played on every clip that we could find anywhere. Anywhere. I've only seen one meme posted of it since it, since you mentioned it to me. And I think that's what bothers me
1: is the hypocrisy behind. Mm-hmm. If you're going to stand for something, stand for it. It doesn't matter who says it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, it doesn't matter what their Republican or what their political party is. If you are against something, it doesn't matter if, you know, the president you like says it. Yeah. The one that you hate says it. Be the same person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Well, are you excited for tonight? I'm excited for tonight.
1: I'm excited. Yeah. It's going to be fun getting everybody introduced to this because they they've asked a lot of questions what it is I've showing them <laughs> videos but like we've talked about I mean you really have to take part of it and you have to be able to try it you know it goes back to what I said about our products yeah best thing we can do is when people take ours to the range and shoot them mm-hmm. you know they can see all your videos they can hear, hear how good I it. said it was yeah but until they get to try it and be part of it they don't know they don't know
0: yeah yeah it's I'm really excited.
1: It's going to be fun. It's yeah. going to be cold, but it'll be fun.
0: It'll be cold, but it'll be worth it. Yes, it will be. I did it in a snowstorm for Stone Glacier a couple of years back oh. in their parking lot in Montana. I think it was 20 degrees out. We'll be warmer than that. We'll be warmer than that. <laughs> yeah. So it should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sitting down for an hour and a half. And oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Chatting it up with me. I, I've, I had a great time. This was awesome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for tuning into the show, folks. If you'd like to check us out online, our website is www.theflipflopguide.co. You can find out all the information you need to have your own flip-flop in your own backyard. We encourage this, and we'd love to see this happening in every backyard across America you can purchase our sauces that have been cranking out flip-flops from my grandfather since the 1960s. If you had trouble filling your tags this year, we also have available on our website, Maui Nui Axis Deer Legs. They're 100% USDA approved and ready for your consumption. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram, at Flop theflipflopguy. We hope you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to smash that subscribe
2: button.